Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, beloved. In your hands you hold the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, and the all-sufficient Bible given to us that we may know Christ, preserved for us, that we might know the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sin according to the riches of his grace. As you open it this morning, turn with me to the incredible gospel of Mark. What a joy to be led in song by Brady and Diana. They so faithfully serve us every week. You know, long before you arrived this morning, those two were here practicing and praying for the Lord to use the gift of music to draw our affections heavenward. You know, every one of us arose this morning and we purposed to come to the house of the Lord. And while our motives for doing so are as wide-ranging as the people that are here and our visitors today, our motives should be fueled and informed by God's motive for us gathering as his people. H.B. Charles, he reminds us in a very pithy way what God's will is for us, both in our gathering and indeed in our Christian walk, declaring, quote, it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God Use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. Ultimately, is that not why we gather? It is well to raise our gaze, to focus our hearts anew and afresh. This is eternal business we are about this morning. And this very strange and very odd activity known as preaching is one of God's primary methods and his vehicle to impart this transformation to you. So, beloved, when we grasp that, when we hunger for it, we long to be fed by the work of the word, rightly divided and delivered to our hearts that we might be transformed, that we might be changed into the image of Christ. What a high calling we have here this morning. Esteem the word highly in your heart. Hide it in your heart. Chew it over. Ponder it anew. Let it excite and ignite you as you grow in your knowledge and your love of the Lord. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. What a glorious truth for us this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued our incredible march through the Olivet Discourse, the longest response to a question ever given by Jesus recorded in Scripture. Not only does Jesus know and understand the trait of, of being human is a desire to know the future, to know what happens next. We don't like the unknown. We fear the unknown. But much more than that, the disciples, they have an eschatology, meaning they have a doctrine of last things. They have a teaching of the end of days. Not only of the end of days, but how the king, their Messiah, and the kingdom of that Messiah, who is there now in their midst, is a part of that eschatology, meaning that teaching of last things. And just like some in our own flock who have started this journey of last things, being challenged on traditions that they've held, they, the disciples had everything they thought they knew about Messiah. His restoration and redemption of Israel, everything they knew was turned on their head. There was no place in their minds for a, for a Messiah that would come and then leave only to come back again. If the Christ was here, 
he would reign. And little of this made sense to them. Little did they know that the second coming will be nothing like the first coming. And this is such a dynamic and important teaching. We not only get a, a very truncated Mark and style recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, but as we've seen, Luke in chapter 21 and Matthew in chapter 24, they give us an even more robust, a thorough recording of Jesus' response to his disciples, to their probing question as they sit there on the Mount of Olives, looking back out over Jerusalem and the temple, asking Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Or even more to the point in Matthew 24, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And thus we have walked through the Olivet Discourse up till now with what may feel to you like deep dives into this topic, but I want to encourage you that we've really only gone waist deep. The intent of Mark's recording for us is not to be a, a comprehensive teaching, a, an all-encompassing walk-through teachings on the last times. One would really need to study and exposit Revelation and Daniel for that. But we know this can be a more challenging area of for knowledge for some Christians. And we desire for you to be encouraged in understanding the events in the world around us and in the positive victory that is to come. It is my prayer that our time in the Olivet Discourse and our study of last things, that they curry an appetite in you to know more and to undertake independent study in such incredible events. You can't get it all from the pulpit. There's just too much on the plate. Well, it was just so last week as we looked to the future time known as the Great Tribulation. With the advent of the abomination of desolation, it kicks off a time in our world, unseen before and ever will be, Jesus said inaugurating the second three and a half years of far worse devastation, bringing with it the final seal, trumpet, and bold judgments, and witnessing with amazing detail Jesus' timeline and his discourse, how they match up perfectly with the seals in Revelation 6 and on. And as we dove into the Great Tribulation, we reminded ourselves why we study such things. And why, out of all the incredible things Jesus said and did, more than all the books could contain, John writes in his gospel, why preserve this Olivet Discourse? In not one, but in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while there are many reasons, we focused on three. First, that by studying such things, we gain a fuller view of God's attributes. Not just his love and goodness and kindness, but we see on display in end times attributes of God that are not popular or taught on today. Lest we offend itching ears or soft ears. And second, understanding end times helps us to, well, to really make sense of the craziness around us today. Understanding, as John says, that the spirit of Antichrist that is already on the earth and at work on the earth today helps us understand. And finally, as Peter exhorts us in his, in his epistle, because all of this will be burned up, how then shall we live? Peter tells us that having a biblical eschatology, meaning a biblical understanding of last things, spurs us on to holy living. It encourages the flock of God that the end game is fixed. 
and it's true as the North Star. Now, even for those who do not know the Lord this morning and his saving grace, to study such matters, you are extended the mercy of seeing the deep and the devastating consequence of sin on this side of the calamity. That some listening might heed the warning. Ought we not, as the great J.C. Ryle said, to study the warnings of Scripture as often as the promises? Close quote. Looking to the great tribulation last week, we saw a great shift as well in the source of the judgments, didn't we? If you'll recall the first half of the tribulation, we, we saw the judgments, while they are allowed of God, of course, will mostly be meted out through men, through actions of men. Now, the pain and the suffering are largely brought about by unrestrained evil and, well, really the natural outworking and outflowing of sin and the degradation that comes when a biblical ethic that's here via the church is removed from the earth. But it was still largely man-centric in its source. But now with the inauguration of the second half, we see the judgments change from being man-centered to God-centered. Instead of God allowing and permitting unrestrained evil to take its, its natural course in the first half, we now see God taking an active role in the judgments. These are the days that had the Lord not shortened them, Scripture says no one would live. No one would survive. And we're going to see in more graphic detail why as we move toward the climactic apex just before Christ returns. And yet he did it for the elect. He did it to keep his promise that he would spare a remnant, bringing not only a full one-third of Israel to turn to Messiah through this awful time, but setting apart 144,000 as well, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes as a down payment, as first fruits to populate a new heavens and a new earth and new Jerusalem. We mustn't forget the overarching narrative and, and purpose of this entire tribulation. God has not done with Israel. He will keep his promise. They have yet unfinished business, as it were. They will see and they will behold their Messiah. Whether it be his kind face or his eyes of fire, they shall behold him on that day. So, beloved, with the church raptured and taken at this point, it helps to understand that much of what we are reading in the Olivet Discourse is God's plan to deal with Israel. God doesn't leave loose ends. The tribulation is well and truly God's future plan and program for Israel. And understanding that the church is gone, that it's taken at this point. Now, beloved, there are teachings out there that would be called a post-tribulation view. It's not heretical by any means, but I want you to know that it's out there. Teaching that the church is raptured after the seven-year tribulation. That the second coming and the rapture occur essentially simultaneously. That we as a church will have to go through the seals and the bulls and through the trumpets, enduring the wrath of God as he pours it out on mankind. And while there are some interpretations that could lead one to this view, in fact, it's the view of Roman Catholicism. Most Protestant theologians find this view less compelling. 
Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God has not destined us for wrath as believers. And as we have seen, much of the judgments during this time are not wrath from Satan or the Antichrist. Though that is certainly there. But rather they are from the hand of God. It's his wrath in more horrific ways than we can imagine. And God has not destined his church for such wrath. Indeed, that is why as we look to Revelation, of course, you'll recall that the first three chapters of Revelation, they're all letters to various churches, aren't they? To all the churches. But then as we round chapter 4 of Revelation, when we look to the throne of heaven and the tribulation begins, the church is never heard from, nor mentioned anywhere again until the very end at the second coming. Well, such an omission there seems highly unlikely if the church was on the earth, experiencing all the horrific seals and bowls and trumpets. Surely exhortation to persevere and guidance would be given, but she is notably absent from it all. There's no mention of the bride of Christ for the rest of Revelation. The most plausible answer is that we are not destined for wrath but we will be spared this horrific time. While time did not permit a thorough treatment of all that will happen during the Great Tribulation, we notice not only a sea change in the source of the calamity and the judgment, going from men to God, but we also notice the source of evangelism in that time, shifting from men to God. Meaning that the time for boldly declaring your faith And standing for the gospel of fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world, right? All the way back to the apostles as the Holy Spirit birthed the church at Pentecost that would catch like wildfire and spread to the ends of the earth. Men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit making disciples of all nations. That is our command today. Now upon the abomination of desolation being declared, the command from the Lord is what? Run. Run. Through the two witnesses now, through angels literally declaring the gospel from the air, God will evangelize and he will proclaim his judgment in special ways for a very special time. And of course, those Christians and Messianic Jews on the run, they will share their faith where providentially allowed. But that that one-to-one open evangelism... That bold proclamation of of your faith, that proclaiming and preaching of the gospel, that will no longer be the primary method. This is a time of such pulsating and intense persecution, as such fear and calamity, no rationality, no reasoning will take place. And thus, for the lost, for those who reject Christ this morning, you must know That the time to hear the good news of salvation in Christ from the comfort of a pew or through the exhortation of a friend or a co-worker to hear this message freely preached from a pulpit. The golden opportunity that is there for you today will not always be there. There will come a day when God takes that over. And to come to him in those days will be certain persecution. To come to Christ during the Great Tribulation will likely require your life as payment for your testimony of Christ. The call to come is now. You want to catch the first train out when Christ takes his church. The second train will have a much higher fare to pay. We saw last week that many are inclined to think that 
The time of the great tribulation will be inherently secular. That religion will be dead. Oh, but that is far, far from the truth. Secularism, humanism, atheism, all the systems that flow out of that fountainhead, while those certainly have the same satanic father as their source, Satan far prefers the religious to the secular. He prefers to get as close to Christianity, the only gospel that has the power to save, to get as close as he can and tweak it enough, alter it enough to gut salvation from the message. No, the Great Tribulation will not be a time where Christianity as a label has been eradicated. Far, far from it. Look at our text last week. Excuse me. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, false Christs will arise. Consider, if the very mention of Christ alone was enough to get you killed, Why would people stand up all over the place and say, I'm Christ? Because they're false Christs. Just as it will be a false Christianity that will be present. Christianity as a label will still very much exist during this time. Satan is not stupid. Say, I thought you said Islam would rule the roost. That they'll kill the Christians. Indeed, they will. But Satan doesn't fight Satan. Understand, Islam, secular humanism, false and pseudo-Christianity all come from the same source, the same fountainhead. And that is how we can simultaneously say that Islam will rule the roost, being a primary sword to kill Christians in this time, and yet false Christs are still willing to stand up and say, I'm Christ, and even perform deceptive miracles. Because they're of the same demonic force. So beloved, the great tribulation will be a time awash in false Christianity. Pseudo-Christianity. Which can live in perfect harmony beside Islam. Satan does not fight Satan. Understanding this is critical. Not only for the tribulation saint who may be listening to this in the future. But here and now. Our discernment contending for the truth against false doctrine, against those who would twist and pervert the gospel with a twinkle in their eye. After the rapture of the church, those people aren't going anywhere. They will all still be here. Consider, beloved, all who name the name of Christ that will still be here. Mormons, still here. Jehovah's Witnesses, still here. Universalists, still here. Your casual, fair-weather Christian. Your Christmas and Easter Christians. They're still here. Your wolves that live amongst the sheep in the church. They're still here. Many, I fear, who have put their faith in Rome. In the papacy. Embracing a different gospel of works righteousness. Of infused righteousness. Many, dare I say most, will still be here. Don't think the label of Christianity is going anywhere in these times. The father of Islam is more than happy to preside alongside these false Christs. And Satan will even empower them in that very name to do miraculous things. Remember what Jesus said about the deception of this time. Matthew 24, 24. 
It will be such great deception that even the elect, if it were possible, could be deceived. But fear not, beloved. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. I belabor this point, lest we think that this will be a simple time, a black and white time where some horned figure with a pitchfork is sitting in the temple. It's easy to see in Jerusalem. Understand, beloved. Jesus tells us that the deception will be thick as molded air. It will take the tribulation saint grabbing hold of their illegal Bible, of gripping it with all their might, and saying, I don't care what my eyes have just seen. Your word is my light. I don't take counsel of my heart and its deception. I don't take counsel of what my eyes see or my ears hear. I'm bound to this text. It is true. Only it is true. That is what it will take to overcome the incredible deception of that age. Might we today exercise just a portion of that discernment and clinging to Scripture? Oh, we could swim in those waters for days. Well, today, beloved, we must look to the trumpets and the bowls. These are difficult topics. We have many visitors today, and God is sovereign over your visiting today. But that's arguably an encouragement as that leads us to, well, really the greatest, most awesome event in all our past and future history, the second coming of Christ. And I say greatest not as in most important or most efficacious necessarily. One could put the first coming of Christ into that position or the resurrection of Christ into that position. And they would be maybe well justified for that. But beloved, precious few saw our Savior born in a manger. Precious few saw our Lord hang on a tree. Precious few saw the empty tomb and the risen Savior. But this, every eye will see. Revelation 1-7 opens, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so... Amen. The second coming of Christ is, well, it's a topic that I'm going to tell you is not going to be done justice by our little time spent in it over the next few weeks. As I've shared with some of you, our time in the Olivet Discourse has been of particular challenge to me because there's, there's so much that we're forced to leave off the plate. Beloved, for every one that I'm giving you, there's ten that I'm not. At best, we're waist deep. At best. So let that overwhelm you for a moment, though, with the awesomeness and the thoroughness and the divinity of the word that we hold in our hands. As we've been looking at the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years, we have looked briefly at the, well, the horrificness that will mar the earth in those days. Yet every day that marches toward that final day, what scripture calls the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, we're going to see a significant rise in tempo, meaning the judgments and activity are going to pick up tremendous steam as we march toward that final battle on the plains of Megiddo, often referred to as Armageddon. That battle truly is, well, it's a whole study on its own. We'd never get out of it. So So we won't have time to go into detail on that, but that is the climax upon which our Lord will return. 
To put it simply, beloved, as the Lord has taken over the judgments at this point, as we reach the final climax, as we look to the trumpets and the bowls, the lights are going to begin to go out. The universe is going to begin to tear itself apart. And we have such oceans to swim through. And while we have our next few verses of forewarning here, today we're really only going to be able to establish the context of Jesus' statement today. Next installment, we will exposit the actual text more specifically. But with that, let us open with our text. Mark 13, 24 through 25. Mark 13, 24 through 25. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach this text today as a needy people. Lord, as ones that are utterly dependent creatures, on your Holy Spirit to wield this word. Lord, many needs have walked in the door today, and you know each one of them, and you have sovereignly decreed the text that we should arrive upon. Lord, we trust you to wield that in all of your perfection. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if you're like me, you probably often daydream of heaven. What it's like, what you will see, What people will be like. What will it be like to behold Christ in in all that he is, in all the wonderment that it is. When we allow our mind to ponder such hope that awaits those who are his. How many of us have considered, when thinking about all these aspects of heaven, how many of us have considered the sound of heaven? How many of us have ever wondered or pondered what we will hear? What is the environment like, specifically around the throne room of God? Well, luckily, Scripture tells us, and to put it simply, it's loud. It's loud. There's a lot going on. Revelation shows us that heaven is a noisy place. Well, consider some of the sounds. Turn with me in your Bibles, beloved. Grab your Bibles in your hands. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Let's hear those pages rustling. Chapter 4. Look to verse 5, beloved. Revelation 4, verse 5. 4, verse 5. And we read, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So that first is the ever-present backdrop of noise. It's a rumble of thunder continually. Then look down to verse 8. Look down to verse 8. We have four living creatures there. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What a scene. There's more. Keep going down to verse 10 and 11. There you have 24 elders singing a song of praise. They'll fall down before him who sits at the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Keep going down. Chapter 5. Turn the page. Look at verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Go down to verse 9. Again, you have the 24 elders singing a song. Look to verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And finally, turn one page over to chapter 7. Let this round out our scene. Chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Listen to this. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before their throne and they worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Thunder and lightning rolling from the throne, four creatures crying out, holy, holy, 24 elders proclaiming worship, loud angels crying forth, multitudes from the tribulation slain with palm trees waving, crying out with loud voices. Heaven is a noisy place. Roaring sound in the throne room like we could never imagine. Now, why share that? What does this have to do with the coming day of the Lord? With the second coming of Christ? More specifically, the events preceding that coming. We'll put a pin in that for a moment, if you will. And recall, we saw the scroll in Revelation 5, did we not? We saw all of heaven rejoice that one was found that was worthy to break the seals to open the scroll, none other than Christ the Lord, a book sealed up with seven seals, each representing a judgment upon the earth. And we beheld the first five seals, representing first a false peace, then war, then famine, then death, then vengeance. But these were but a foretaste, a preview of what truly is to come. And next came the sixth seal, And we saw when the Lamb of God opens the sixth seal that a devastating earthquake occurs, causing massive upheaval, terrible devastation, literally changing the face of the planet. Along with cosmic upheavals and astronomical phenomenon, the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, and the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And scripture even records for us the reaction of those unbelievers who survived the sixth seal. And it is remarkable. It is an incredible response. One that's worthy of a message all on its own. But we see this in Revelation 6. It reads, 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, this is a remarkable response. What do we see? These are unbelievers. And they know where these judgments are coming from. And they know who's doing it. And they still persist. These cosmic movements are clearly of God. And the two witnesses have broadcasted all over the world. And the angels flying in the midpoints, heavens are proclaiming to them the gospel. They know. Yet they don't repent. And turn to the Lamb. What do they cry? Hide us from the Lamb. Hide us from the one who sits on the throne. Kill us. Let the mountains fall on us. Now this may seem an odd response to some. Surely if you and I saw such things, we would cry out to the God of heaven, right? Save us. I was wrong. You are Lord. Save me. But no. In fact, Revelation 9, 20, 21 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, or of their immoralities, nor of their thefts. Again in Revelation 16, 9, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Beloved, you've often heard me say that Everyone is either a potato or an egg. The boiling waters of trials, of hardships, of persecutions, of pain, is either going to harden you like an egg, or it's going to soften you like a potato. The unbelievers alive during this time are all eggs. The continual judgments have only caused them to harden. And it will be the same way in hell, dear ones. Surely there they would submit and see their error. Not so. Scripture says they will hate even more. They will hate God even more there. Revelation 6 displays the inertia of a darkened heart. The momentum of a fallen heart. That's what we all had before Christ made us alive. It is Christ who makes dead men live. It is all Christ. In the famous words of Jonathan Edwards, the only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Scripture tells us that there is nothing intrinsically good in man that we should desire God. It's all of Christ. So now, having passed the sixth seal, let us circle back to those incredible sounds of heaven we spoke of. The noise, the roar that is heaven and the throne room. Why? Now you will see. 
Because the seventh and final seal is about to be opened. And I want you to watch what happens. If you're still in Revelation, turn over one page again to chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, beloved. The seventh and final seal. These are the seals that contain the trumpet and bull judgments. Now consider up to this point all that has happened on the earth over the preceding seven years. It's almost unthinkable. Death and destruction on a massive scale. Judgments like we cannot imagine. And yet the throne room of God this entire time roared until now. Look with me, beloved, to chapter 8, verse 1. Something incredible is about to happen. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Silence. Why? When the Lamb broke the final seal, all of heaven could now see what was in it. And silence fell over heaven for half an hour. Stunned silence. Reverential. Awestruck. No words for the calamity and finality that was about to be unleashed upon mankind. Like nothing even the strong angels of heaven had ever seen before. The four creatures fell silent. The angels silent. Pure shock. One theologian called it, quote, the calm before the storm. The silence of foreboding, of intense expectation of what God is about to do, close quote. Not only the pure wrath of God, but the legions of hell are about to be unleashed upon the earth. And first, seven angels are given seven trumpets to sound. Then come the bowl judgments. All of these are contained within the seventh and final seal. Now, very quickly, the seven trumpet judgments, I'm going to give them to you in hot sequence. And I'm going to hit these fast. We're on Facebook. We're on Sermon Audio. Go back and listen if it's too fast. All of these can be found in Revelation chapters 8 through 11. The first trumpet. When the first angel sounds his trumpet, the world will experience hail and fire mixed with blood thrown down onto the earth. And one-third of the world's trees will be burned up in this plague, and all the grass will be consumed. In the second, something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood. A third of the ships sink. A third of ocean life dies. The third trumpet is like the second, except it affects the world's freshwater lakes and rivers instead of the oceans. Specifically, it says that a great star blazing like a torch falls from the sky and poisons a third of the water supply. This star is given the name Wormwood. It's poison. It kills many. And the fourth, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Basically, these are radical eclipses. And it causes the global temperature to plummet. That throws off all the tides, all the weather patterns. It's complete chaos. And the fifth trumpet, if we, if we dare, this is also known as the first woe. 
releases a plague of demonic locusts with power like that of scorpions. But unlike normal locusts, these are not to touch plant life on earth. Scripture says that they go straight for the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, but they're not allowed to kill them. They will torture those without the seal for a period of five months. It's the word of God. Scripture says their agony will be so great they will wish for death, but death will evade them. The sixth trumpet, also called the second woe, involves the onslaught of another demonic horde. Once the sixth trumpet sounds, a voice from the altar of God calls for the release of four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now these four angels, these are, these are fallen angels. These are demonic angels. And they've been kept in captivity just for this purpose, to wreak destruction during the tribulation. And these four angels, these wicked angels, lead a, a supernatural cavalry of thousands upon thousands to kill a third of humanity. All this is in Revelation 9. And finally, the seventh trumpet, also known as the third woe, sounds from heaven upon the earth. At the sound of the seventh trumpet, the temple of God is opened in heaven. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Well, now with the temple of God open, Revelation 15 says, Seven more angels stand with seven bowl judgments. It's not over. In fact, if you can believe it, the worst is yet to come. Revelation 15.1 reads, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Revelation 16 details out what are called the bowls of God's wrath. This is it. This is the final cleanup. It's hard to believe there's yet still anyone alive. And while it pains me to bring these to you, beloved, they are the word of the Lord. They are the word of the Lord. They are the very warning of our Savior in the Olivet Discourse. And sadly, we must first walk through the trumpets and the bowls of the seventh seal to even get to our text in verses 24 and 25 in Mark. All the bowls and all the trumpets precede, meaning they come before Jesus' final warning in verses 24 and 25. And yet it is difficult to see Jesus' description rightly unless we realize all that has happened to humanity up to this point. Through the seven seals, through the seven trumpets, through the seven bowls, as the light begins to go out on the earth. So our bold judgments very quickly, these are the most severe of all that we've seen up to this point. This is the final push, all in Revelation 16. First bowl, the first angel. He pours out the first bowl on the land. Scripture reads, And ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Second bowl is poured out on the sea, turning the water. Scripture reads, Into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. 
And you'll recall that a third of the sea life had already perished with the sounding of the second trumpet. And now the rest of the sea life is gone. The oceans are completely dead. In third bowl, all the remaining rivers and freshwater springs also turn to blood. That's now all oceans, all rivers, all fresh water, either poisoned or blood, no life, all water. Fourth bowl, the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. And we saw that their reaction to that was not to repent, but to curse God even louder. Saying, I know it's you, God, who does this, and I curse you for it. And fifth bowl causes the kingdom of the beast to be plunged into great darkness. The pain and suffering of the wicked intensify. Scripture says, so that the people now gnaw their tongues in agony. And still the followers of the Antichrist, Revelation 16, 11, refuse to repent. So the sixth bowl, the angel pours it out, completely dries up the Euphrates River. Dries it up completely. So that doesn't sound so bad, right? That's one of the best ones we've heard so far. What's so bad about that? It was either poisoned or blood anyway at this point, right? Why? Why dry that up? What's so bad about that? Scripture reads that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Meaning that the drying of this river paved the way for the literal path of attack for the final battle. It was this drying of the bed that lulled them into their final doom, their final battle. Listen to scripture. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And they gathered them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So drying of a river doesn't sound so bad till you realize that it's the primrose path to the greatest and final destruction of the very planet. And finally, the seventh bowl triggers an earthquake like none ever before. It causes Jerusalem to be split into three parts. Every city that still had any building standing anywhere in the world will collapse and be swallowed. Islands are flooded. Mountains disappear. Scripture says that hailstones 100 pounds in size will fall on the inhabitants. Now this now begins to meld into our text from Jesus. In the Olivet Discourse. Look to our text, beloved, verses 24 and 25, which we've really only been able to give the context for today. It reads again, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heaven will be shaken. But beloved, by looking at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, We've essentially walked you right up to these verses, okay? You understand all that has happened already. Jesus is saying, but in those days, after that tribulation, those days, that tribulation, 
Speaking of the second half of the Great Tribulation, an incredible signs, celestial signs, are going to occur as the lights go out and the universe groaned under the weight of sin for so long, it will finally give way. And we're going to look much more at that in two weeks from now, even looking to the Old Testament and seeing the testimony of the Old Testament that it gives as well about these days in our text. But hang in, beloved. Hang in there, beloved. I know these are hard topics, but as I like to say, the juice is worth the squeeze. Now, beloved, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table, as we remember our Lord, Paul proclaimed to the Corinthians, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The new covenant replaced the old covenant when Christ, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed. And he was sacrificed to pay the sin debt that stood over us all. And we can praise the Lord in this and joy in this in light of today's difficult message. Seeing the immense cost of sin and the consequence that will be exacted both on earth and in eternity. Beloved, if you are in Christ this morning, you are not destined for wrath. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. You have been pardoned. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Glory to God in the highest. Mercy is available for all who would call on the name of Christ this morning. Cry out in repentance and faith. There is mercy and there is grace on abundant offer this morning. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, if many of us were honest in our hearts, Lord, there are many other scriptures that we would have rather in our heart have gone to today. But Lord, this is your word. This is your truth. This is your warning. This is your exhortation to us. Lord, it's not only an encouragement for those who know you this morning, that we know the victory that's coming, that we know that we'll be spared from this wrath that is to come. But Lord, it is a mercy to those who do not know you. Lord, that they have an opportunity on this side of calamity to surrender. Lord, to not ask that the mountains fall on them and crush them, to not hide from the Lamb, but Lord, to turn to the Lamb in repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you for this incredible day that you've given us, our chance to be together and to worship and fellowship together. Keep us until we can meet again in Jesus' name. Amen.